Hey there, before we start today's show, I want to make a request. So on Post Reports, we work hard to give you, our listeners, useful and important information. Now we would like you to give us some information. We have a survey that we're running right now, and we'd love to hear from you. We want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. It only takes about five minutes to complete. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. When you're done, you can enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. We really appreciate your help, and thank you so much. Some big news broke last night on January 6th. The Washington Post has found that the Department of Justice is investigating the actions of former President Donald Trump. For a long time, there were questions and even some criticism that the Justice Department wasn't doing anything that made it appear that they were investigating what Trump did in the run-up to January 6th. The news here is that, in fact, prosecutors are looking at Donald Trump's actions and conversations and what instructions he gave those around him in the run-up to January 6th. That's Devlin Barrett, and he covers the Justice Department for The Post. I know what you might be thinking when you hear this. This means that the DOJ is definitely going to charge Donald Trump. But it turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 27th. Today, we're talking with Devlin about what it means now that the DOJ has started looking into Trump. And later in the show, we're going to talk to congressional reporter Mariana Sotomayor about how same-sex marriage became a bipartisan issue. One of the subjects that the DOJ is investigating is the so-called fake elector scheme. So that was this last-minute effort before January 6th to swap out actual electors in the states that Biden had won and put in pro-Trump people instead. According to the Post reporting, the DOJ is looking specifically at meetings that Trump led where that fake elector scheme was discussed. But what I wanted to know from Devlin is where that investigation will end up. So wait, when you say that the Justice Department is investigating Trump's actions, does that mean that they are investigating Trump? I mean, with the intention of potentially charging him with criminal charges at some point? The way I would say it, and the way I think is the most accurate description of what's going on right now is at a bare minimum, prosecutors want to know what instructions did Trump give his lawyers and advocates when they set out on this mission to gather these fake electors and try to like sort of inject them into the system. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're trying to find out if there were crimes of fraud involving that effort, one of the things you need to know is what were those lawyers' instructions? What were those advocates' instructions? What did the big guy tell them to do? Now, if what the big guy said to them, just to use an example, I'm not going to I'm not suggesting these are the actual words out of anyone's mouth, but to Mm -hmm. use an example to explain sort of like the legal and factual questions that have to be answered. Let's assume his what he tells them is I still want to be president. Why can't I still be president? I should still be president. Legally, that's not very damaging or incriminating to Trump. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, what is said is something like do whatever it takes to to make, to stop this from happening, mm-hmm. meaning Biden becoming the president, 
that's then a very that different a, issue. A potential criminal. And so, right. And so I think one of the important questions as a prosecutor you have to understand is what were those lawyers' instructions? So they're looking at those actions to the degree that they understand those instructions to be more directly involved and more giving orders to those lawyers to sort of pursue that fake elector scheme as aggressively as possible, that may be legally problematic for him. The other thing to just keep in mind, because I think one of the one of the things I just is a fact of life in covering criminal investigations is a lot of times when we report that there's a criminal investigation, a lot of the audience receives that information as in this person is going to be charged. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a lot of, an assumption that a lot of people are making now of like, oh, finally, the Department of Justice is looking to charge President Trump. It's going to happen. Exactly. And I, I think I'm not saying this, you know, because it's Trump specifically. I'm saying this for every case. Mm-hmm. Most investigations do not end in charges. Political investigations in particular are difficult to bring home with charges. So I think the expectation inflation that goes on around Justice Department investigations is is really sort of often untethered to what's, what's really happening. Hmm. And so I'm not suggesting that criminal investigations aren't important or, or that, you know, you shouldn't look or it doesn't mean anything. What I am saying is that an investigation is its own animal and doesn't necessarily lead to any charges. One thing to keep in mind is that no former president ever been charged with a crime before. And I want to talk more about that and about the the challenges mm-hmm. if that were to happen. But but first, can you just tell me how we know this? How do we know that the, that the Department of Justice is now investigating Trump's actions? And is it safe to assume that this is in response to the January 6th hearings that we've been hearing over the last couple of months? So this is something we've been asking people about a lot. Obviously, we talk to a lot of people and try to figure out everything that the January 6th investigation is doing. And we've been doing that for a long time. And there are interesting tells and indicators along the way. One of the things that we reported that's new here is that uh, the Justice Department got phone records for uh, the president's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and other people who were close advisors of the president back in April. These hearings didn't start until June, really. So clearly the the Justice Department was looking at this circle of human beings, their communications, and what they were doing well before these hearings. Now, the public and, and some members of Congress get frustrated because they don't see or know that that's happening. And so in, with the absence of evidence, they assume that there's nothing happening. Hmm. Um, so, so you're saying that this Justice Department, um, the evolution in their investigation is happening pretty independent from what we've been seeing on Capitol Hill in the hearings. Independent and before. The congressional hearings are not going to drive the criminal case. And I think the one of the sort of challenges of, of covering the hearings, frankly, is that people naturally and understandably assume, well, look, if people are giving testimony here, doesn't that mean that that's testimony that can be used in the criminal case? And the answer is basically not really. Criminal investigators have to do their own work and their own way, and they have to do it privately and, and not in the public spotlight. So those are two very different things. And, and part of what our reporting shows is that that was going on and that was looking at people very close to Trump and, and his inner circle long before the hearing started. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here because, as you said, there are many criminal investigations that the Department of Justice conducts that don't end in criminal charges. Um, And as you said, it is particularly 
challenging um, or fraught to try to charge the president. But if that were to happen, like, what would be the challenges? Why is there an extra high bar here if Attorney General Merrick Garland was like, okay, let's, we think that there are criminal actions that Trump needs to be charged with? So the simplest way to answer that question is the institution of the Justice Department and the institution of the FBI were never really built to investigate, arrest, and charge the president, who on paper at least they report to. It's not really what the criminal justice system was designed to do. That doesn't mean it can't do it, but that does mean it's doing something that is unusual for that system and for those people to do. So in that sense, when I say it's harder, that's mostly what I'm talking about. The other area here that, that's a little hard to unpack and you have to sort of like dig down into some of the nitty gritty of, for example, the fake elector scheme is there have been times previously in American life when people have mailed in their own names as like, well, I'm an, I'm an elector and I, I choose so-and-so. Those people have not been charged with crimes for doing that. This is obviously a much different dynamic where you have a lot of people in either positions of power or with access to people in positions of power trying to do a very coordinated effort to essentially change the outcome of a valid election with valid results. I think then you have a very different animal and a very different set of questions. Anytime you ask any institution to do something it's never done before, that's probably going to be harder. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that it's it's a it's a bigger challenge. And I think that's what I mean when I say this is harder than other types of criminal investigations. It's harder because they've never done anything quite like this before. So what is going to happen next? When are we going to find out what the results are of this investigation into Trump's actions? I don't know. No one can predict the future. Anyone who says they know what's going to happen in the future is playing a game. I think what's interesting and what I'm looking for are what you saw last week, for example, was two former senior Trump White House officials brought into the grand jury. And one of the things we reported is the prosecutors are asking witnesses about what Trump said at these meetings. What were his instructions? Hmm. That's an important detail. I think a big question to see going forward is who else comes into that grand jury? That will tell us something that will give us some clues as to as to where this is headed and how quickly they go in. And once you're in the grand jury, you're presenting evidence with an eye toward a possible indictment. That becomes the place to watch. I think the last month has been a very deliberate and important shift from all the sort of below ground, underwater things that the investigation has been doing. And now a lot of that has moved above ground. And we've seen that in subpoenas and search warrants and now grand jury witnesses. So we are in a new, different stage of this process where a lot of what they're doing is observable to, quote unquote, the outside, folks like me. And so we're probably going to see more activity. Devlin, thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. Devlin Barrett reports on the Justice Department for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. After the break, we talk about how some lawmakers in Congress are trying to codify protections for same-sex marriage and how that's become a surprisingly bipartisan effort. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. On Capitol Hill this week, there has been a lot of talk about two issues that we haven't heard debated in Congress for a while, same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. Because of the Supreme Court, interracial marriage has been legal in the U.S. for 55 years. Same-sex marriage has been legal for over seven years. But the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has made a lot of people question whether other rights, like marriage equality, are also in danger of being rolled back. What really raised the alarm bells here on Capitol Hill is the fact that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his concurrence to that abortion access rollback decision essentially said maybe it is time to go back and look at those Supreme Court cases that did pave the way. Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter for The Post. She has been reporting on this legislation, which surprisingly passed the House with the support of almost 50 Republicans, about a quarter of the Republicans in the House. I think part of it, and, and you did hear some of these Republicans members say this, is, you know, they have family members who are gay. They have friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. They've been to those weddings. They don't see a difference between, you know, attending a wedding between one man and one woman and two men or two women. So, Mariana, what exactly is this bill that's being considered? The Respect for Marriage Act essentially would give federal protections to anyone in the LGBTQ community who wants to get married. It would also protect interracial marriages. And I think one of the most important things is that it would actually roll back a federal law from almost 30 years ago, the Defense of Marriage Act, which essentially says that marriage should be between one man and one woman. So in a hypothetical situation where, let's say, next year, Mississippi decides that they're going to pass a law that makes gay marriage illegal, or if the Supreme Court were to come out with a decision next year that says, oh, actually, that decision that legalized gay marriage, we're actually going to overturn that. The idea is that this federal bill, if it becomes a law, would mean that that it doesn't matter what the state or the Supreme Court does, that this is the law of our country and that that's kind of the final say on this question. That's correct. That's exactly what a lot of people here on Capitol Hill say should be the law of the land, just making sure, even though there has been, like you said, the reassurance from the Supreme Court previously. But these what-ifs are legitimate questions that should be addressed, and Congress is the only one who will be able to do that if this becomes law. So this bill passed in the House with bipartisan support with 47 Republicans who voted in favor of it, along with all of the Democrats in the House. And I think a lot of people found that to be pretty surprising, that you had so many Republicans that were willing to support what is essentially um, making sure that same-sex marriage can continue into the future. Can you explain a little bit more about why that happened, why there were so many Republicans in the House who were on board? Yeah, it was a pretty big deal to see almost 50 House Republicans support this. And I got to say, that's still a pretty small margin when you're considering how many Republicans serve in the House. But, you know, a number of these Republicans had different reasons as to why they supported it. Some of them, you know, have friends 
who have gotten married and they've attended those weddings. Other people say, you know what? I've been married. I've been divorced. If anyone wants to do that, then they should be able to do that. Others say as well, you know, government shouldn't necessarily have to intervene or define marriage. People should decide to do what they want. The issue of the day, this bill is just another superfluous exercise. This bill is... Of course, many more Republicans oppose this legislation. This bill is not only unnecessary, it's more of the same. It's yet another effort to delegitimize the Supreme Court. Even though a number of House Republicans said the reason they voted in support of this because they have either family members or they've attended their friends' uh, same-sex marriages... There's a number of them who also find themselves in similar situations who still voted against the legislation. One of them is Congressman Glenn Thompson, a Republican from Pennsylvania. He voted against the bill and just a day later attended his son's wedding. And, you know, when you've asked that office as to why that vote was contradictory, they say, what a lot of Republicans have said, which is this legislation is nothing more than an election year messaging stunt for Democrats. That's that's something that the office said in a statement. Really, what a number of these Republicans were arguing was something that you often hear in the minority, which is code for, I don't want to vote for something that the majority party is putting up. So they argue things like, oh my gosh, Democrats are trying to rush this bill. This bill was dropped on the body yesterday afternoon, an hour and a half before rules. They didn't even put it through committees. But we had no benefit of the debate in Judiciary Committee to have a deep discussion about this issue. About the constitutional they just put it for a floor vote. They didn't consult Republicans. So I'm just going to vote against it on principle. Hmm. But still, I mean, I know that you say that 47 Republicans in the context of the House is not actually that many. But I was under the assumption that this is a pretty bread and butter issue for Republicans, along with abortion, that same-sex marriage was something that to be a kind of card-carrying member of the GOP, that this is an issue that that you stand on one side of, which is that marriage is between one man and one woman. But it sounds like that political reality has gotten a lot more complicated, that maybe same-sex marriage is more bipartisan than some people realize it to be. Yeah, it's, it's really true. If you really even think about just how quickly Across America, the perception, the opinions have changed on same-sex marriage. You know, people who identify in whatever way they want to identify has become way more commonplace. Of course, you do also hear the opposite side. A lot of Republicans, of course, making a big deal, questioning, you know, what is the definition of a woman? Why do Democrats not want to say, you know, a man is a man, a woman is a woman? Those arguments, I should say, do help rile up their base. But when it, a lot of Republicans here kind of look at it as the text says, you know, we're rolling back the definition of marriage between one man and a woman. And people who are interracial marriages and want to engage in same-sex marriages, that's what we want to say that we support. And if it's that simple of a definition— then you are seeing a number of Republicans supporting that, which is interesting. I I believe these lawmakers, when they say that a lot of this comes down to their personal relationships, people and their families or people in their lives who have gotten married and they support those people and don't want to 
do wrong by them by not voting for this bill. But I also feel like there has to be a larger political calculus here of what is potentially beneficial for them to vote in favor of this. So I guess when you look at the Republicans who did vote in favor of this, and we could also start talking about the Republicans who might vote in favor of this in the Senate, I mean, what are some of the larger calculations that they're making about how this vote could be advantageous, even though they're Republicans? So a number of Republicans that we saw vote for this over on the House side are ones who are retiring, for example. So they don't, they aren't going to face any political blowback. Others are in tough races. Some of them are actually now representing some Democratic-leaning districts, and they want to make sure that, you know, a Republican can still hold that district. So it's likely that those communities just have more acceptance towards interracial marriage, same-sex marriage. So you can parse it that way as well, that these people, I'm sure they would argue, you know, we're just representing our district. But if you do find yourself either not running for re-election or in a district that is a tough race, it's likely that you won't face much blowback. So this bill might come up for a vote in the Senate this week. What are the chances that it would pass in the Senate as well and pass by a margin that would actually allow it to become law? That's always the question on the Senate side. How many Republicans do you need to actually pass this? The answer is 10. And so far, we know of at least five senators, Republican senators who are on board with this. I think it's very important that we prevent discrimination, remove the anxiety. Senator Susan Collins actually introduced this bill in the Senate at the same time that the House brought it up. So that already signaled some bipartisan support. And there are a number of senators who have agreed with Democrats in the last year who could possibly fall in line um, on this vote. And you can also look at some people who are retiring. Again, they're not going to face any political blowback from voters because they aren't going to be running again. And some of those people are like Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina. He has expressed some positive comments about supporting uh, same-sex marriage. Of course, someone else who works in a bipartisan manner is Senator Lisa Murkowski, the Republican from Alaska. She has expressed pretty positive comments about how this is a non-issue. But it wouldn't change the law. It would keep the law as it is and simply say that if somebody wants to marry somebody of the same sex, they'd be permitted to do that. And, uh, and one state should respect another state's laws on, on that. One of them is Senator Rob Portman. He is a Republican from Ohio. He, of course, is retiring, but his son is also gay. And, you know, someone like Senator Mitt Romney has brought up the question as to why Democrats are forcing votes on what is considered non-issues. But Senator Portman actually had an interesting answer. And he said, you know what? It, it's true. We don't want to be voting on bills that aren't necessarily controversial. But if it's a message bill, it's a very important message to send to the American people that Congress, the government, that members of both parties really do support people across the country, even though, of course, the LGBTQ community still remains a target for Republicans. I'm also curious about what this says about Congress's relationship with the Supreme Court. It feels like in this moment, we're seeing a lot of different ways in which both parties in Congress are trying to 
respond to or anticipate what the Supreme Court is doing and in some cases kind of work at odds against them. And so I guess what, what do you see here in, in terms of how Congress is kind of coming together to say, you know, no matter what the Supreme Court rules, we are going to make sure that at least these forms of marriage are protected? So I think you definitely see a little bit of anxiety from Democrats here on the Hill. And by that, I mean, it's possible that they lose their majority in the House by the end of the midterm elections. And once that happens, you're not going to be able to pass a lot of legislation, including things like making sure that these kinds of marriages are protected law. So besides just this marriage bill, a number of House Democrats have tried to codify Roe v. Wade legislation. That's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. They also have passed successfully, with less Republican support, federal protections so that people can have access, guaranteed access to contraceptions. It's unclear if it's going to pass in the Senate, but you are seeing the House especially realizing, okay, we can possibly lose the majority. Let's try and pass a number of protections that essentially, as they point to, Justice Clarence Thomas has kind of raised the alarm, raised the flag of, okay, maybe we can look at this again. They want to make sure, they being Democrats, want to make sure that they can put these things in place if they are voted out of power. Mariana, thank you so much. Thank you. Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to fill out our listener survey. You can find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.